Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. To be better investors, we need to make better decisions. We all struggle with bias and unstructured thinking, but there are systems we can use to nudge us towards better decisions. I want to know how to frame our decision-making to align with our investment goals. And in today's dumb question of the week, why save for retirement? Okay, let's get into it. So, Roman, over the weekend, you sent me a note just saying, we need to do a podcast on decision-making. So what happened? Did you have a kind of crazy epiphany? All of a sudden you realised every decision you made was wrong? (laughs) No, I just realised that it's something so important, but it's something I don't think we've talked about a lot in the past. And I was listening to the Rational Reminder podcast with Ben Felix, and this is one of the topics they did. And they really respect this guy called Ralph Keeney, who I'd never heard of. So it made me kind of dig into it. And I just thought, oh, this would be great. So is this around how to actually think about decisions and frame them in your mind? Yeah, and structuring them. And some really incredibly simple things, which I think clarify the process and ensure that you get better outcomes. So who's this Ralph Keeney bloke you mentioned? Well, he is an academic and he comes from quite a technical background. So a lot of what he does, I suspect, is quite mathsy. But he's just so good at explaining it and in a very simple way without any math at all. Okay, so what's the basic process he talks about when you're approaching an important decision? Well, he breaks it up into two steps or two kind of processes. One of those he calls the front end and the other's the back end, which seems a bit weird on the face of it. (laughs) So much in life can be divided between the front end and the back end, especially when you have a baby. (laughs) (laughs) So the front end, you state the decision you want to make, And then you specify what you want to achieve by making the decision. Yeah, so I think the front end is kind of defining the actual decision you're facing. Where a lot of people go wrong is they don't actually understand the question or the decision they're trying to answer here. Or what they're trying to achieve by making that decision. The example he gives, which is a really good one, is he has a lot of doctoral students. And if you ask them about their choice of doctoral thesis, you know, the subject... A lot of them don't have an idea. You know, they think it doesn't matter. They say, I just want to get a PhD. So, you know, that's a stupid thing to do. (laughs) But that's what they want, right? They want the PhD. Of course they do. But his key point is the choice of subject for your PhD can hugely influence the outcomes. Make sure it's something that's interesting, that lets you perhaps find a better job or perhaps meet interesting people. Don't just do it for the sake of it without having an idea about the consequences afterwards. Yeah, I think his whole philosophy is called value-focused decision-making. Yeah, that's right. And then the back end is the alternatives to that decision. So you don't want to just consider one decision. You also want to think about other decisions that you could make. And you also want to think about the consequences for each of those alternatives. So I think at the very start of the front-end process is the question of defining the decision properly. Because a lot of people have vague decisions they're talking about, like, oh, I need to decide what to do with my investments. Well, decide what? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So he says, write down a sentence that begins with the word decide. And that kind of makes it more concrete, doesn't it? Well, I did have that sentence just now, decide what to do with your investments. But it needs to be even more specific. Start with decide. And then the second word is the question word. Who, what, why, where, when. So to take your example and make it more concrete, we could say decide which asset allocation is appropriate for you. So how much is in stocks, how much is in bonds, how much in commodities, how much in alternatives. And that's something concrete which structures the rest of the process. 
Yeah, that's right. And the next part of the process is to identify your values is what he talks about. Rather than jumping to objectives, let's think about our values first. So let's say your decision is, shall I retire? Well, what are the values around that? Well, it's quite difficult to say what your values are. You know, you could say, well, I hate my job and I want more free time. But what he says is a beautiful way of eliciting the values that you've got by saying, well, imagine the best outcome, you know, an absolutely perfect outcome. And now imagine an absolutely awful outcome, possibly the worst scenario for you as a consequence of your decision. And by comparing those two, you'll immediately see what's important to you. So, for example, if you retire and you're terrified about running out of money, you know, clearly the size of your pot and how likely it is to run out is very important to you. And if an ideal outcome is something like I get to spend more time with my family, then you can see what the values are in that decision process. Yeah, and I think the key point that he makes is write down all the values that matter. So if you're considering whether to retire now, some of the values might be I want to pass some assets down to my children or I want to maintain a sense of meaning and purpose in my life. I want to not worry about running out of money every day, regardless of whether that's a realistic outcome. So it's like really just write down everything you care about is how he phrases it. Don't think necessarily at this point in terms of objectives, because then people just think, oh, how can I measure it? And they're just tossing out things (laughs) that they should otherwise consider. So just write down everything you care about. And then the second step, he says, is to use mind probing techniques. So what is mind probing? It sounds uncomfortable. I think it's just a suite of different techniques to try and surface some values that you've maybe overlooked that you actually do care about. I mean, what are some of the techniques he talks about? Well, one of them is quite touchy-feely. It's about the emotions and feelings you've got around the decision making. So you could ask yourself, well, why do I actually care about this decision? Why does it matter in the first place? Yeah. And why do I care about some of these values? So if you're weighing up retirement and one of your values that you've written down is, I don't want other people to think I'm not a productive member of society now and I don't have self-worth. When really, is that what you care about? Do you really care about what random people think about you? One which I think is really important is your goals and constraints, because it may be that you can't afford to do something. Or let's say it's a decision about buying a house. You've obviously got constraints there in terms of what you can afford. So you've got to consider the constraints as well. The one I quite like is considering different perspectives. So suppose a friend or even a competitor was faced with the same decision. What do you think their values might be? That's interesting because it forces you to enter somebody else's mindset and perhaps look at the problem in a different way. So I think that's a really nice one. Yeah, because we're basically trying to brainstorm all the things we care about. And you'd think it'd be easy to just come up with a list of things we care about when facing a big decision. But I don't think it is easy. We just focus on like the big two or three, but there's lots of different ways we're going to evaluate an outcome. Another thing to consider are the strategic values for you personally or also for your organisation if you're making a decision for your company, say. So, for example, companies often have ethical policies which constrain what they can do. So perhaps one of your strategic goals is if you're Shell and you want to move away from fossil fuels eventually, that would be potentially part of your decision making. What, when you're considering whether to drill a new oil field in the North Sea and be like, hmm, they've removed all my tax incentives. Maybe (laughs) I won't do it. Or whether to put out a press release boasting that you've just hit record profit. And maybe the final one, which I think is a good way of thinking about your values before you even come to make the decision, is imagine in the future you've made this decision, you're living with the consequences. What might be the biggest disappointment or regret at the outcome you'd feel? And that might give you a clue as to what you actually care about. 
And one nice example of that is when I'm talking to people about lump sum investing, you know, someone that's just got a large payout at work or perhaps inherited some money and they've got a big amount to invest. And they always talk about the regret of markets crashing after they invest. So that's one of the examples which often holds back their decision to invest in the first place. So this is a big one, I think. So as we work through this process to identify values and then objectives, so step one was just list everything you can think of. Step two, use these mind probing techniques. And then he says step three, go and ask other people, presumably people whose opinion you actually value in some way, <laughs> go and ask them to suggest values that you might have missed. But then there's a big caveat, isn't there? He says, don't initially ask others for suggestions. Otherwise, you might anchor on their thoughts. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So the order of this process is important because we know one of the cognitive biases we all suffer from is anchoring bias and being over-influenced by what other people think. So yeah, write down everything you can think of and really dive deep into it before you go and look for suggestions from others. And it's true, isn't it? If you talk to someone who's very opinionated, it often kind of sways your opinion. For example, when you were radicalised by Joe Weisenthal, you remember? No, I've been on the platinum coin train for a long time, Robin. <laughs> it wasn't Joe. I was an OG on that. And the CPI shadow stats, that radicalised you as well. <laughs> that was a brief passing phase of radicalization. Okay. <laughs> it was contained to the uh, hour we were recording the podcast. And I think the final stage he identifies of when you're thinking about your values is you have to turn them into concrete objectives. And he has a very specific way of doing this for each of your values. Now, this is the thing that comes from the mathsy bit. But the idea is it's got two words. For example, it might be maximise for the first word, i.e. make it as big as possible, which is what people usually think of with profit. But as an investor, you probably think about maximise return. And another one might be minimise cost, right? So you're turning your values into specific objectives that are ideally measurable. One of your values could be that you want this decision done as soon as possible. So your objective might be finish quickly, something like that. But just get these two word summaries of all your values as objectives. So in a mathematical context, what you'd call this is a utility function, because what you say is for every outcome, you specify a number which tells you how good it is. And that's what you're usually trying to maximise. So in our process, we've defined the decision. We've listed every value we actually care about. We've turned those values into specific objectives. Now we get to creating the different alternatives we're going to consider. Now, this is something that was always difficult when I was speaking to my mum, because whenever she asked my opinion about something, I would never even bother coming up with an alternative because she just decided what to do anyway. And I don't know why she asked me, to be honest. <laughs> this is why you started doing power hours, for people that actually care about your opinion now. <laughs> Yeah, I was the youngest child. I guess that's true. But the point here is that he says don't ask other people at this point when you're creating alternatives, because that could really stop the flow of your ideas about alternatives. But you kind of pivot on the objectives. So you choose an objective and you say, how else could I achieve this objective? So let's take a concrete example then. If we're thinking about deciding on our asset allocation, there's a lot of different alternatives there, isn't there? And we can come up with loads just off the top of our mind. And then you can go online and look at all these different sample portfolios. <laughs> you can come up with almost infinite asset allocations. But once you're kind of keyed into a certain objective, then you can look at the other alternatives and look at whether they're likely to meet your objective. So I think a lot of people are surprised by the fact that if you do split your assets outside just equity, it can actually still give you pretty good long-term returns. 
And that's why I think sites like Portfolio Charts are great for asset allocation because they let you play around with those alternatives. So let's say we have all these different alternatives when it comes to asset allocation. We've got the golden butterfly, we've got the permanent portfolio, we've got 100% stocks, we've got scared to get 100% bonds, we've got all of these different things. Then let's look back at our values that we stated. Let's make up a few. Let's maybe say our values are maximize return, minimize cost, minimize drawdowns, understand how each component works. What else might we have? So let's say that you've got a certain pot that you need to reach by a certain date. That's an important constraint. Yeah. So we've got all these different objectives we had. Now we've got all these alternatives. How are you going about weighing them up and making the decision? That's what we're here to do, right? Is to pick one. So at this point, once you've decided on your objectives, then you can do things like Monte Carlo simulation, where you can say, look, given this portfolio, how likely is it to reach my goals by this point in time? That essentially is a numerical problem in this case. It won't always be a numerical problem. Yeah, and you mentioned Monte Carlo simulation. Now, in simple terms, that's kind of mapping out all the different ways your investment could go and how likely each outcome is, right? That's right. So you just say, given this portfolio, what are the likely future outcomes? And what it does is simulate thousands of potential paths by looking at volatility for the investments and then simulating multiple random paths based on historical returns. And then you can see in what percentage of those paths, future paths, does your objective get met? Yeah, all your different objectives, whatever they might be. Yeah. And it's interesting because this is the back end now we're talking about. This is the analysis. This is the math. And this is really where you might want expert help, either through some sort of online tool like you have on Pension Craft, Roman, I know. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, through using a financial advisor. So this is why I like the distinction between front end and back end, because I kind of think the front end, defining the decision really thinking hard about your values and turning them into objectives. That's what you're responsible for. Yep. You've got to do that. That's kind of the heavy lifting. It's the bit we all jump over and we immediately start modeling everything. But hey, hang on, get that front end sorted. And then the analysis comes. And that's where, you know, you're on the phone to Roman for your power hour. But I often think, you know, if you want to make these decisions, even when you hand it over to someone else, if you've already been through the process of structuring the problem, that takes you a lot of the way there already. And when someone does give you advice, you immediately understand what they say much better. And you can also judge the quality of advice based on whether you think it's going to meet your objectives. So rather than just saying to someone, what should I do? You structure the problem and then they kind of slot into the process in a very clear way. I think that's exactly right, because otherwise it's the cart leading the horse, isn't it? If you're just getting all this different maths thrown at you saying these are the maximum drawdowns, this is the return on average, but it could all go wrong in this yeah. way, <laughs> you don't know what you're actually trying to achieve. So it's getting it done in the right order. And I think when we do all this modeling, we get someone to do it for us and it comes back. So let's say we've got 15 different alternatives we're discussing around asset allocation. Immediately when the numbers come back, we can probably rule out, let's say, 10 of those alternatives yeah. by saying, no, these are just not going to meet my goals most of the time. Let's not even go any further with them. And I think even if you get that far, you've done much better than most people. And if you've got it down <laughs> to like choosing between five pretty good alternatives, right? Yeah, I think ruling out the no hopers is really a huge step forward. And another point, I think, which probably counts against my business, but people often tell me that the most valuable part of speaking to me during one of these power hours is structuring their thoughts beforehand and writing down their questions, which is kind of playing to this idea of structuring the process being the most valuable part of it. 
Yeah, that's definitely what I took away from the Rational Reminder podcast, which you urgently made me listen to. (laughs) (laughs) And just stepping back a minute, what I think, based on no real science here, so I'm just taking a flyer, is that there are broadly two kinds of people when it comes to decision making. There are people who like to take their time and are maybe prone to overthinking. And I've heard this called analysis paralysis, where your decision making can become paralyzed and you're just considering all these different options. You're taking too long to make a decision. And to be honest, this is kind of what I'm prone to. I'm prone to overthinking. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have people that are summed up by the phrase extinct by instinct. Have you seen this? Where we like, (laughs) we act too quickly. And it's the Darwin Awards, right? You go and make a silly decision because you haven't taken your time. And somewhere in between those two lies the correct way to approach important decisions. Extinct by instinct. I like that. But that's so true. I mean, I speak to people all the time, obviously. It's very clear. I mean, people often say to me, you know, I suffer from analysis paralysis. I mean, I can talk about that one a bit more because that's how I see myself, right? It's interesting to know which group you might fall into. And I think I'm definitely that one. But then I do speak to people who've also, you know, acted instinctively and perhaps taken too much risk or made hasty decisions about investment. And, you know, a lot of that, I think, is FOMO during a big rally, during the growth rally after the pandemic in particular. Lots of people just crowded into the stuff that was going up. And that's caused real problems later on. Yeah, I think temperamentally, my wife is on the opposite end of the spectrum to me. Not that she makes stupid investments, but she definitely like thinks there's a problem or a decision that needs to be made and makes the decision, right? (laughs) So between us, (laughs) we might have a good system. But I think if you have the analysis paralysis kind of condition, (laughs) then there are certain strategies that I've found useful for me. Now, the first one of those is just to eliminate from your life as much as possible any sort of low stakes, unnecessary decisions that crop up every day. Because there's this idea of decision fatigue, whether it's a real thing, I don't know, but I feel it, where if you're having to decide oh, what to wear every morning, what to eat for breakfast, the route you're going to take to work, like if those are real decisions you're really having to think about every day, it's like you don't have time or the mental capacity to think about the big decisions you actually care about. So for me, it might sound boring, but I just have the same wardrobe every day, for example. And for me, the way that applies to investing is to keep my portfolio super simple and not have all these different investments, which I have to think about, you know, every day or every week. Do I keep this? Do I sell it? Do I buy more of it? Like, I don't need those stressful decisions in my life. Getting asset allocation right is the thing I focus on. And that probably does most of the heavy lifting. You know, if you've got the right asset allocation, it's the most important thing. And the second way I kind of fight analysis paralysis is to try and give myself a bit of leeway to think in experiments. And what do I mean by that? I mean, to get over overthinking, if I want to try something... I'll find a way to do it in a small, contained way and just go for it and see what happens, right? As long as it's not going to poison the things I really care about, let's give it a go. So having a fun portfolio, for example, so you can try stuff out. Yeah, exactly. Or if you're going to get into crypto, you just do it in a small amount and don't go crazy with it. And also, you know, if you're in a job and you've always had the desire to start a business, but you, you know, it's a big leap to quit your job and to do it you know, maybe just find a way of doing a little bit on the side and seeing if you actually like it, if you get any traction. It's just an experiment. (laughs) That's how I always phrase it to myself. (laughs) And the third way that I fight analysis paralysis is to commit to like a rule-based process for the things I actually care about. So I can overthink all I like about investments. I allow myself to read 
all the news, all the analysis, all the, it's going to crash, it's going to be a huge bull market, all that stuff. I can think about it all I want, but no matter what, my monthly contribution is going into my index funds. I'm not going to pause them because people are saying the market's overvalued or whatever it might be. So it's almost like you automate it so that you don't have to make a decision. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what he calls policy. So that's stuff that, you know, you run in the background all the time and it avoids you having to make decisions. Yeah, because I think sometimes the biggest mistake or bad decision people make with investing is just not investing, right? It's not getting started Mm -hmm. because they have this analysis paralysis going on. I think, well, how do I invest? There's so many different things. So if that is you or you're liable to just pause your investments all the time because you get scared, you've got to come up with a system. Or you have to have it absolutely perfect. You know, I think people don't realize that with asset allocation, you know, 5%, 10% difference here and there won't make a huge difference to your outcome. Yeah, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. A Voltaire quote. Let's take this up a level. (laughs) Oh, well done. Can you say it in French? No. (laughs) (laughs) But I see people, for example, who've got life strategy 70, because what they do is they say, well, there wasn't a 70% portfolio, so I bought 60 and 80, 50-50 of both. Well, intentionally. Intentionally, yeah, because they say there wasn't a 70, so I just made my own. Well, that's fine, isn't it? Well, I'm just thinking, you know, it won't make a lot of difference if you go for one or the other, you know, so it doesn't really matter. And there is one other way, I think, of fighting analysis paralysis. And this is really doing it in a mathsy way. So I'm going to let you talk about it, Roman. And this is the 37% rule. So let's just clarify what we mean by that. Now, there are lots of problems where you have to decide where to stop, right? So you're considering alternatives and it's going to take forever to choose the best thing. So what you have to do is sample, and then after a certain period of time, you just choose the next best one that comes along. Interesting. So this isn't just investments, is it? It could be, you know, you're looking for a partner, you're dating, and you can scroll through a million people on Tinder. But at some point, you know, you've got to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> but mathematicians have tried to solve this problem for a long period of time. They came up with this really nice rule, the 37% rule. Where does the 37% come from? If you are a mathsy person, it's 1 over E the irrational number. What the hell is that? One over E. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's about 5% of people listening there are going to understand that, Robin. Well, you know about natural logarithms, right? So it's like... Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's some magic number, but this is a way to solve the optimal stopping problem, which is this idea, isn't it? You've got a million different options to choose from, but you don't have to think about them all. Now, let's try and think of a financial example of this. Let's say you're trying to find the best financial advisor. There should be Tinder for financial advisors, don't you think? Just swiping (laughs) through. That's my business pitch for the day. Brilliant. So how do you choose the best financial advisor? So you might think it's best just to stick with the first good advisor you come to. But according to this optimal stopping theory, that's not true. So what you do, let's say you've got a sample of 20 advisors you're going to consider. So the question is, at what point do you stop and choose the best? You might think you'll just go through the list until you find one you're happy with. Oh, man, I have to look through 20 advisors. But no, the optimal rule cuts out a lot of the donkey work. So what you do, you wait until you're 37% of the way through the list. That is seven advisors. See, I could do maths, Roman. (laughs) (laughs) At that point... The next advisor, which is better than all of the rest I've had so far, I'll stick with. So that's the solution to the optimal stopping problem. Go 37% of the way through, and then the next best one is good enough. That's the one. (laughs) And that's the optimal stopping rule. It doesn't always give you the best, but it often gives you the best. 
it's a trade-off, isn't it? Yeah. And in psychology and economics, there is what's known as the explore-exploit trade-off. And this actually comes from a lot of theory in ethology where creatures have this problem all the time, right? Animals which are foraging for food, like ants or hunting wolves. Honey badgers? Honey badgers, yeah, that would definitely be there. (laughs) But look, these animals have to make these decisions. You know, do I stick where I am, exploit the local resources, but then you might exhaust them? Or do I go further afoot and explore the territory beyond my territory and hopefully find new food with a risk of essentially starving? But you can also apply this to decision making. I mean, it's really analogous to what we've just talked about and the 37% rule, isn't it? Yeah. So do you stick with your portfolio or do you go and try out something new? Or do you stick with your financial advisor or do you go and find a new one? And I think there was some academic research which was published in Nature about the explore-exploit trade-off. And what it kind of showed was that the extremes of being too explorative or too exploitative leave us disadvantaged. Like, it's a genuine balance and you want to be somewhere in the middle. But what was interesting is they talked about this continuum of explore and exploit. And you see it in young people and old people. So young people often explore more. It's just their nature to do that. You try out new stuff. Whereas if you're old like me, you kind of try out less new stuff. More exploiting. Goddamn boomers. (laughs) 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 Or if you're in a business environment, you've got entrepreneurs who are very explorative but take higher risks. And then you've got people who work for a large company, for example, who are much more staid. Yeah, it's really annoying in a way that the optimal behaviour in life is something of a balance. You can't just sort of min-max everything, which would be easier, right? If like there was one thing you were always trying to maximise, because when you're trying to choose a balance of behaviour, you know, there's judgement involved, there's subjectivity. (laughs) It's just way more difficult. This is why I always like to challenge my beliefs and listen to new things, because eventually you're going to come up with something which is new and actually works really well. And you can't just lock off your mind from all these possibilities. Okay, so across this episode, we've talked a lot about how to make really structured, thoughtful, and hopefully correct decisions. But, you know, that takes a lot of time, right? (laughs) Sometimes you don't have the time. So I often like to think about what are some, like, random prompts or shortcuts that can give us a clue about what the right decision might be. So one is to say, in one year's time, what would I regret not having done today? Yeah, I think that's a good one. That forces you to step back from the problem and try to look at it more objectively. Yeah, and for me, it's helpful just to phrase it like that because, like I say, I'm slightly biased towards overthinking. So if I say, what would I regret not having done? It makes me think, well, I better do something. (laughs) But also to take it to an extreme and say, look, put it forward 20 years and say, look, if I could talk to myself now, what would I be telling myself? That's a really useful exercise. Well, let's take it even more extreme. When I'm on my deathbed, what will I regret having done and not having done? And there's an interesting book, Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And this was done by a nurse, wasn't it? Yeah, it was done by an Australian nurse, Bronnie Ware, who worked in palliative care and recorded a lot of what dying people said about their lives and regrets they had. I'd wish I'd had a Lambo. No? (laughs) Interestingly, Lambo regret was not one of the top fives. But I thought they were quite interesting. So the number one on her list was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Well, that is interesting. And it's kind of what we touched on earlier. With get other people's opinions and look at what their values around a decision might be. But do it later in the process, right? It's interesting because as I get older, I've found that I care less what other people think. 
I can't imagine you ever having cared what people think. <laughs> I don't know why. I was thought you were a bit of a <laughs> maverick. No, no, no. When I was younger, I mean, I certainly cared what other people thought. But I just find that, you know, as you get older, you just kind of, you know what you like. And you know, pretty much, you know yourself better as well. When you're young, you're just trying to find your own path. And you don't really know what your goals are. True. The second top five regret of the dying was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. That's surprising as well. Do you find that surprising? Yeah. I kind of see that because having stepped away from, you know, formal employment for a little while, it is better not having <laughs> to go to an office every day and do work often for the benefit of others. I wonder if it's working hard, but working hard at things you don't enjoy. Because, I mean, I love what I do now. Yeah. I didn't like working hard when essentially I was just making other people rich. <laughs> that wasn't so good. Yeah, no, I think that is the distinction, isn't it? You want some sign of autonomy. The third regret they had was, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. That's odd. A lot of people keep stuff bottled up. I don't know how it relates to investing necessarily. <laughs> keep feelings out of it. This isn't the place for emotion. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, people get really passionate about investing. But I guess it's true in a sense when you're making decisions around investing with your partner. Which you always do. I don't speak to many people who just invest solo. You know, I often have calls with two people at once. You know, it's often the partners talking to me together. Yeah, because if someone is quiet and doesn't say, oh, I feel a bit scared about this, like when it goes wrong and they've taken too much risk, that can really put pressure on a relationship. And I thought maybe next week is Valentine's Day, so we should do a relationship one. Oh, that would be good. Tune in next week, everyone. <laughs> And then the final two regrets of the dying were, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends and I wish I'd let myself be happier. Oh, those are good. I like those. They are good. I can't relate them to investing, but yeah, bear them in mind. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things we mentioned was Monte Carlo simulation when you're actually trying to work out which option is best and whether you'll meet a goal. And as a member of Pensioncraft, you get access to tools for Monte Carlo simulation. If you want to learn more about that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners and a member of the Pensioncraft community, Timofey. And he's got a nice provocative question, which I always like. <laughs> so he says, <laughs> why save for retirement? And to read from his email, he says, when you are old, your mental and physical capabilities decline and you can't enjoy as many things as a young person can. And having money only helps so much. Besides, there's always the chance you die before reaching retirement and then all your savings go to waste. And then he concludes by saying, you only live once, so why not spend your money to enjoy life while you can? And developed countries generally have some form of minimum retirement, so you won't actually starve. What do you think, Roman? Tim, if I got a point, why are we saving all this money? Why are we investing for retirement? Well, certainly you can fall back on state retirement, but it's not going to be much of a retirement. So, you know, there is another alternative. You know, we've been talking about decision theory. What if you actually live a really long life after retirement and you've got very little money? You know, that's a consequence which a lot of people probably want to avoid because I think the minimum pension would certainly be a subsistence existence, at least in the UK. Yeah, and I also wouldn't necessarily base my plans around it being there for me in 30 odd years time. Now you, Michael, you think that it might not even exist. No, no, I think it probably will exist. Just the political consequences of taking it away would be so severe, right, for whoever's in power. Old people vote. And, you know, you don't want to leave people starving. So you're always going to have to provide something, if at all possible. 
I guess, to Timothy's point, though, what could happen is if they start means testing the state pension, then it's effectively taxing money we'd save for retirement because you're just sort of offsetting it. So there'd be a kind of zero sum game. But I wouldn't want to rely on the state pension, right? It's just not going to be a good quality of life. And especially when retirements, like you say, could be super long now. If you retire at, I don't know, 65, you could easily live another 30 years. Do you really want to be literally just sitting, eating beans on toast and watching daytime TV? I think the real benefit of these savings is giving you choice. It gives you choice about how you spend your time in retirement. You don't even have to retire. You know, you can just do hobbies which you enjoy and have the choice of retiring, which empowers you. And I know that a lot of people feel stressed about their life because they end up in a job they don't want to do. But if you could somehow choose a career you enjoy, it could be in the charity sector, it could be in the voluntary sector somewhere, which doesn't pay well, but which is rewarding. Could be podcast host. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then that gives you huge freedom in life and potentially a very rewarding life. So it's not just about, you know, having lots of money. Yeah, I think the other point is, why save for retirement? Well, I wouldn't want to be a burden, right, on my kids. And if you've saved nothing and you're just having to live a subsistence existence, for most people, if you saw your parents doing that, you're going to feel some sort of obligation to really support them financially. I don't think you'd want to put your kids in that position. Or even worse, imagine having to live with your kids. You know, that would be pretty painful. That's a kind of cultural thing though, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that is a cultural thing. Like multi-generational households are common in most parts of the world. Somehow in Europe, it just seems like an awful prospect. I just imagine living with my parents, it would have been quite difficult, put it that way. I mean, when I think about this question, I think the fundamental mistake that Timothy is maybe making is in the framing of it to begin with. Why save for retirement? Well, it doesn't have to be for retirement. You said, yeah, it gives you optionality and it can enable you at some point in your life to launch your own business if you want, because you've got a bit of savings to rely on to support your kids if they need to buy a house at some point, you know, to travel the world, whatever it might be. It's not just saving up excitement for your old age. And bad things happen. You could get ill and require care and this at least allow you to pay for that. I think it's easy to kind of think everything will be fine, but sometimes it isn't. And you have to essentially save for that possibility. And the other point is that there's such good tax incentives (laughs) to save for retirement. (laughs) But it's not one for one, right? The money you chuck into your pension has much more power, spending power, than if you just blew it all today. So in a sense, you're spurning a tax gift if you don't do that saving. Yeah, you're turning down free money. Yeah. So why save for retirement? Well, you're going to have more aggregate spending power across your life if you do that. Or another way to think of it is, would you rather make the government richer or yourself richer? Because that's what you're doing essentially when you turn down those tax gifts. And I think this whole question really comes back to something we talked about earlier, which is balance. This is what's hard about life. Yeah, you could say, I'm not going to save retirement. I'm going to blow all my cash now. I'll have a great time while I'm young and I'll live a terrible life when I'm old. But you're probably, as an average across your life, not going to live the best life by doing that. It's balance. And that's what's hard. If you go to these min-max extremes, like save too much and regret it when you're old that you didn't live properly when you were young, you're going to not have a great time. And if you don't save anything, you're going to have a bad time. So it's, yeah, trying to find the right balance. Hard stuff. I like it. You turned it into a decision theory problem. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production. 
co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.